This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the second movie in our month of Alfred Hitchcock with Dial M for Murder, starring Ray Milland, Grace Kelly, Robert Cummings, and John Williams. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are covering a film that I'm not sure people other than Hitchcock or film fans are familiar with, but that I would really encourage all of you to watch before next week's episode, A Shadow of a Doubt, starring Teresa Wright, Joseph Cotton, Henry Travers, and McDonald Carey. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there, so check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, Dad, we once again bring in our most frequent guest to the show for, I believe, what is this now, your sixth appearance, Mom? I believe so. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So, and I'm Christine Duncan. Yes, another member of the Duncan clan. So before we get started on too much, Dial M, just generally, I've heard it described at multiple points in my life that either it was rear window or it was Dial M for murder. So mom, we're going to settle this right now on the air. Which of these is actually your favorite Hitchcock movie? You get to only pick one. This is my favorite. You know, it's kind of silly, but um, I think because of all the feminine aspects in the two films together, but especially in this one where it talks about her purse, it talks about things that women do, and the other movie does the same thing. So I think it strikes home with me because I look at it and I'm going, yes, of course, I would never leave my purse without my keys in it, you know? And so she talks a lot about a woman would never do this or a woman would never do that. And she's right. So I think when Hitchcock did this film and and when they were writing it, they really did must've talked to some real live women about what they do and don't do in order to make up the murder. It's possible we had quite a bit of influence from either Pat or his wife. Alma. 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 I, I really believe that they did some studying about the habits of women before making these two films because they talk about the same thing in Rear Window about how a woman never leaves her home without a purse. So a lot of the feminine parts of this film take place around femininity and what women do. And I think that translates still today. I would never leave home without my purse. I would never not have my keys in my purse. Well, there's actually, in my uh, research, I found Hitchcock had designed with the uh, fashion editor uh, an elaborate purple robe that had intricacies of light and dark in it and all this. It was going to be this big thing. And Grace Kelly's like, no woman is going to get up in the middle of the night and put on a robe to go answer the telephone. Well, what would you wear? He said, my nightgown. Exactly. I wouldn't bother, especially if I'm in my own home. Who's going to be there to see me other than me? Just ruin the did you know section already. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Uh, What are you going to do? But I think that I think that the way this is done and the way Rear Window has done it appealed to women. So I'm wondering what type of audience when they went to the movies were women compared to some of his other films, like North by Northwest. That is not my favorite film. So, but then again, there's not as much to the female aspect in that film. I don't know if I I would necessarily agree with that. But then again, I didn't really notice it in this film. And given that it's based on a 
fairly popular stage play of the time uh, that had won a Tony Award for one of the actors that appeared in the film, you would guess that a lot of the writing or intricacies of the plot itself or the dialogue had to come from the play. So I don't know if that's a touch by Hitchcock, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. Dad, you have said before this episode that this is likely to rank high on your rewatchability category. I guess what makes Dial M such a rewatchable film? <laughs> in part, this is the least Hitchcockian Hitchcock film I can think of because it's predominantly a verbal film. Other than the murder scene, it's all dialogue. And Hitchcock is renowned for his visuals, not the dialogue. I mean, Hitchcock talks about one of his favorite scenes in all of his movies is in a film that we did last week, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And in that film, his one of his the scene is is where James Stewart is walking trying to find Albert Hall, and uh, he hears footsteps, and it's just him and footsteps. And Hitchcock thinks that that's the best scene he had done at that time because it was just visual with just one sound effect, and it built tension by visualization instead of dialogue. This one is different, but for that reason, it's just so well done. And you don't have to think about it that much because Ray Milan in his dialogue with, with Swan is, is basically laying out exactly what's going to take place. And then you, the only part of the film, it, it's not a murder mystery. It is a crime mystery or a mystery of how the police resolve uh, the lies. And so that's the key is that only the last part of the movie is a true mystery. It's you're, you're trying to figure out how uh, the detective John Williams is going to unravel Ray Milan's lie. And the other thing that's unique about this film is that 95% of the film takes place in one room, in their living room. You know, they have one short scene, you know, in the courtroom and they've got a short scene at the stag party. But the majority of this all takes place in one room. And I think that's unique about this film, you know, compared to a lot of his other films as well. Well, I happened to listen to a or uh, have an audio book uh, not too long ago when they were talking about uh, development in studying film. And in there, they talked about how the, the Columbo, which is a show that all of us older grew up on, is based in large part on Dial M. Columbo, the crime happens in the beginning of the film, or of the, the show, or the mini film. And the entire show is not about the crime. It's about Columbo uh, coming to the solution of how to unravel the crime. Well, kind of like Sherlock Holmes, the same thing. It takes him how how he unravels no, everything. No, see, too. that's distinctly different. Sherlock Holmes, we don't always know who the murderer is, but a lot of modern crime TV, Law and Order, set up that way. Monk was set up that way. Are based on the action or the crime happening at the beginning, and we know exactly what's going to happen, and it's whether or not they can figure out the solution because we don't know all the details. There may be some things filled in, but it's not necessarily in the Sherlock Holmes way where he reveals this grandiose thing at the end. I think that is distinctly different. It's the the Poirot or uh, Holmes detective stuff is much different from the early part of the 20th century to the end of it when we get some of that stuff. And I do think there is something to be said. Um, I'm borrowing a line. I think I heard this on TCM once, but it's a murder mystery in reverse. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about the visuals, and I really noted, because when you're watching Hitchcock films, he's one of the primary users of what's called the Dutch angle, and I don't know if either of you are familiar with that, but where you tilt the camera at a slight angle. There are only two instances of that in this film, whereas in other ones, he's using it constantly. It was a method that was actually invented by the Germans and primarily used during the 30s. And it's very famous in something called The Third Man, another film that I'm sure we're going to cover at some point. But he only uses it twice, and it's during the murder scene to give a 
feeling of unease as he's about to strike, essentially. The only other weird camera angles that I could think of were he had an overhead shot when basically Ray Milland is pacing out where the crime's going to take place at the end there where he's circling the desk. And the only other thing I could think of, of note, and I did get an explanation for why they did that, there's a scene when he's explaining to the Swan character, basically that first, um, when he's hiring him scene. But if you remember, it pans behind the couch and they're separated by the lamp. Now, the only reason they did that was because the movie was originally shot for 3D. And so they wanted to show the depth based on that. Because I'm like, why have this thing in here? It makes no sense to have this in here. So that gave me a little bit of clarity on that. Realistically, if I were to answer my own question, though, I think this is rewatchable because, particularly for the three of us, we all enjoy theater. And theater, you go to see actors delivering great dialogue repeatedly and in such great pace and setting that it gives it its gravitas. And I think more than any other Hitchcock film, because it doesn't focus on the dialogue in Psycho or The Birds, the story is almost irrelevant in those. Whereas it's going for moments of sheer terror. This one specifically, being based on a play, gives a lot more to the dialogue as being the primary driver of what happens in the film. So if there's anything to me, you've got three absolutely wonderful actors in Robert Cummings and Ray Milland, who I think is terribly underrated for what he did in the 30s and 40s, but this is coming at the tail end of his career in the 50s, and Grace Kelly in one of, I think, what, three films, four films that she did with Hitchcock? This this film, I think, was the first, Then she had Rear Window and... Uh, to Catch a Thief before she ended up marrying Prince Rainier. You've got three classical actors all at the top of their game, and then throw in the Tony Award-winning John Williams. So you, you have a great combination of great actors all delivering their lines in a compelling way, and you can watch that over and over and over again without getting tired of it. Well, and I think the subject matter, it doesn't get old. You have, you know, a woman who's conducted an affair and the husband finds out and it's sort of a crime of passion and anger and revenge. And, and you know, you see those movies today, too. So it's a theme that transcends, you know, the years and you can understand both sides of the both sides of the picture and so I think that you can rewatch it because the theme of it doesn't necessarily get old. So let me ask this question, though, too. And it struck me about mid to three quarters of the way through the film. Who's the protagonist in this? Raymond Land may be the closest thing you get, but he's really an anti-hero. Grace Kelly, you get somewhat of a floozy and she kind of is in and out of the play more often than not. You can't, don't get enough of a relationship or understand Robert Cummings' mark enough for him to be the protagonist. And you could make a case for John Williams as the chief inspector, except that he doesn't show up until basically halfway through the film. Exactly. He's only coming in and out of things. So I, I guess I would say that it's it's the Ray Milan character. But but you almost want to hate him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I do hate him. Think about this. Well, and, and the thing is, is the protagonist is really probably not a character, but the act, which is the murder gone awry. I would say it's our general sense or the audience's sense of justice if you're going to make a character push, because yeah. we want justice to be carried out, even though all of these people have done terrible things, with the exception of the chief inspector. Yes, yes who's classic. I mean, his character is just classic. So let's give everybody some context on this movie. Dad, do you have your plot summary ready? I do. Tony Wendis, Ray Milan, an English retired tennis player, is married to wealthy socialite Margot, Grace Kelly, who is having a long-term affair with American crime writer Mark Holliday, played by Robert Cummings. Unbeknownst to them, Tony knows about the affair and is planning to have Margot killed so he can inherit her fortune. Tony hires an old acquaintance, Charles Swan, Anthony Dawson, and sets in motion a murder that is to happen while Tony and Mark are out giving Tony an alibi. However, the plan goes terribly wrong, 
and Tony returns before the police to arrange the crime scene to frame Margot. With Chief Inspector Hubbard, John Williams, investigating, Margot is convicted and sentenced to death. Did Tony really plan the perfect crime? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Ray Milland as Tony Wendis, Grace Kelly as Margot Mary Wendis, Robert Cummings as Mark Halliday, John Williams as Chief Inspector Hubbard, Anthony Dawson as Charles A. Alexander Swan or Captain Lesgate, Leo Britt as the storyteller at the party, and Patrick Allen as Detective Pearson. Recognition for this film, the film was listed by the American Film Institute in 2001 in their 100 Years 100 Thrills at number 48, and in 2008 it was AFI's top 10 of 10 as number 9 in the mystery category. Did you know? Originally intended to be shown in dual-strip polarized 3D, the film played in most theaters in ordinary 2D due to the loss of interest in the 3D process, the projection of which was difficult and error-prone by the time of its release. The film earned an estimated $2.7 million in American box office sales in 1954. Did you know? Originally released in a roadshow format with an intermission halfway through it, this was the norm for 3D films of the era, as time was needed to reload the projectors near the halfway mark. Did you know? Alfred Hitchcock had chosen a very expensive robe for Grace Kelly to wear when she answered the phone. Kelly balked and said that no woman would put on such a robe just to answer the ringing telephone while she was asleep alone. She would answer it in her nightgown. Hitchcock agreed to do it her way and liked the way the rushes turned out, and he allowed Kelly to make all costume decisions for herself in their subsequent movies together. Did you know? Alfred Hitchcock wanted Cary Grant to star, but Warner Brothers felt that he would be miscast as a villain. Did you know? Alfred Hitchcock's dream cast for this movie included Deborah Kerr, William Holden, and Cary Grant. Kerr and Holden were busy making other movies, and Grant refused to play a villain, a role Ray Milland was happy to play. Did you know? John Williams won the 1953 Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Play for Dial M for Murder as Inspector Hubbard. He recreated the role in this movie. Did you know? Warner Brothers forced Alfred Hitchcock to make the movie to fulfill his contract. Such was his lack of interest that he claimed he could have phoned in his direction and that the action wouldn't have been any less interesting if he'd staged it in a phone booth. Did you know? When Wendis is describing Swan Lesgate to the middle-aged woman with whom Swan had been affiliated having died from a drug overdose, Wendis was originally to say, quote, middle-aged woman found dead due to an overdose of cocaine. This was in the original script and stage play, but due to the Hollywood Hayes Code rules of detailing of drug use on screen, the studio officials insisted to director Alfred Hitchcock to replace the word cocaine with the word something. So... What would be the elevator pitch for this movie? I already gave you mine. It's a murder mystery in reverse. I have crime of passion. A uh, twist on the traditional British murder mystery. So none of our pitches are overly descriptive of the movie itself, but I guess that's exactly how the elevator pitch is supposed to work. So then let's move over to best performance. And mom, let's start with you. Who did you have down? Well, I think they all did real, a really great job, but I absolutely love the inspector. I think John Williams did a phenomenal job of keeping a poker face when, you know, he knew what was actually happening and he was just trying to prove it. And of course, when she comes back um, after being incarcerated and, and knows nothing and, and I think that, um, that he just does a phenomenal job of holding it all together for solving the crime. Dad, did you also have John Williams or did you go in a different direction? I went slightly different. I went with Ray Milan. So let me just finish up the point then on John Williams. Cause I also had him as my best performer. I think he has a great aloofness that's necessary for this film because he has to play two very distinct roles or two different acts essentially of the same character. One, he has to be intensely focused on coming after Grace Kelly, and you have to find him believable. And yet by the end of it, you have to also believe that he's omniscient and has a presence that's going to catch Ray Milland. And it's difficult to play both of those. I think when we use the actors 
from the stage play, it's turned out great most of the time. You think about, what is it, um, Robert, I can't remember his name, but uh, from The Music Man, or... Robert Preston. Robert Preston, thank you. Or we talk about uh, when we did our My Fair Lady, and uh, Henry Higgins was played by the same character from both stage play and... Rex Harrison. Thank you. So And Henry Fonda and Mr. Roberts. Exactly. So I think when they've had, I don't know, probably at least 100 performances with the same character, they really get a feeling for exactly how the character is supposed to be. Not that any of the other performers was any less, but I think that that's probably the most complex character of the three because he has to change different intentions and motives within the same course of the film. So, Dad, who did you then end up having down? I had Ray Milan. Um, And it's simply because it would be so easy to make this character just pure evil. And, but there's a certain suaveness and likability to Ray Milan's character that even though you know he's disgusting and vile, you still kind of like him. You know, it, it's kind of one of these endearings. I think... And the one I use always is uh, Fred McMurray, before he became everybody's dad with my three sons in the 60s, had that knack. He looked like just a nice guy, like he'd be your buddy. But yet he had this dark element to him that he could play these just scoundrels from the Kane mutiny to the apartment to double indemnity. And Ray Milan has the same ability. There's a certain element about him that he just can be suave and likable and just absolutely despicable at the same time. I find him completely lazy. I mean, you know, he was, at first he's a tennis star, and then he decides to quit tennis to stay home, and he does nothing. So what is he living off of? That's one of my complaints, is I don't really buy that Ray Milland was ever a tennis star. He just doesn't have the look. I know that this is a little bit different era when they weren't like the... Uh, prototypical athletes that we expect now with Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. But still, it, he just does not look to me like a great tennis professional. And he's too old. Well, that too. That he would just quit. I mean, I think that, yeah. So I, but then, you know, she convinced him. He said, he says that when he's talking to Swan, she convinced him to quit playing tennis so that, you know, he could be home and be more supportive to her. And yet he's, doesn't seem to be working. He has enough time to plot this whole thing out. So I, yeah, I'm with you. I don't believe he looks like any sort of tennis star. And I think he's a scumbucket. He's lazy. Well, an additional odd question is, is how does he carry out a job that he clearly has a boss for, but have the time to basically stalk Swan? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's, it, it's not that difficult to understand because he's a former athlete. There are a lot of companies that hire professional athletes or former big name athletes for the, the, the marquee, having the person on. The, the most renowned is how many ex-governors work for the Foley Law Firm in Wisconsin. They don't go in and do anything, but their name on the letterhead looks very enticing. And so he's basically a good luck charm or publicity for the company. So they're not going to care what he does. You know, his he has to call of, his boss from a stag party? For what reason? Or that's a pretext. It's a pretext. Because my guess is, is that at that time frame, part of it was is he'd hang out at the tennis court or he'd hang out at the country club. And he was there to be a goodwill ambassador for the company. So they weren't watching him. And I think that that element, it could have been better explained, but that's an element of the early 50s that I think was there that um, doesn't translate. It doesn't translate to today because it's very difficult to understand how a company would pay somebody to just be a goodwill guy. Well, I think the word best to describe his character in this is smarmy. Yes. And I think there's actually one really fitting scene. I kind of am in between both of you as to how I feel about his character. First off, I really like Ray Moland as an actor, and ha part of that has to do with his performance in The Lost Weekend, uh, a Best Picture winner from, I believe, the mid... No. It was like 46, 47. 
Yeah, that's probably about Somewhere right. in there. Yeah. So, but anyway, I think that he has a certain uh, aloofness to most of his characters, and that's where you might get the laziness. But really, there's a pivotal moment in this that, to me, convinces me that that is the character. Normally, when you get caught, you go all Jack Nicholson at the end of A Few Good Men, and you're, like, trying to force yourself through five cops in order to, like, I'm gonna take off your head and crap down your skull, you know, type of, uh, you get angry. But he doesn't do that. He instead, and he goes and pours himself a drink and realizes he's caught and, well, okay, I'm just going to be this guy who was above it all to begin with. I tried to plan the perfect murder and, well, I got caught. And to me, if he does that in the moment where he's undone, then for sure he's believable in the rest of the film doing that. All right, so then let's move to best secondary performance. Dad, what did you have down? I had John Williams simply because, and the only reason I didn't give him best performance is how little he's actually on screen because I couldn't, I couldn't give best performance to somebody that was, I think the total is it's a two hour movie. And if he was on 30 minutes in the entire film, I'd be shocked, but he is phenomenal. And, you know, for those of us of my generation who grew up with sixties and seventies television and, uh, uh, sit or in syndication after school. Uh, John Williams uh, became famous in American audiences as the guy who replaced Sebastian Cabot as uh, the butler on the TV show Family Affair after Sebastian Cabot's heart attack. And so that was how people in the United States knew him in the 60s. But uh, up until then, this is probably his biggest role. Mom, who did you have down? I actually have Robert Cummings. I think he is the epitome of the perfect man. You know, he's suave. He's got slicked back hair. He has an answer for everything. I think he plays this character beautifully. He acts beautifully, you know, when he's with uh, Ray uh, Millard at the, at the uh, stag party. He, he plays it up to a T. And I just think that um, he makes it really believable. Well, Andy's completely invested in Grace Kelly. He's also my best secondary performer. I just enjoyed his character. I don't know if he had to do a great acting job. Maybe I should have selected him for most charismatic in that form, although I went with someone else. I just, he asks the right questions at the right time, and his passion clearly drives him. So I just liked him from a character standpoint. I'm with you. I'm not so sure he had to act much. I get the feeling that the, that the character that he played is a lot like himself. And that's possible. But then that might just be a great form of casting. Well, if it was like himself, he would have had a drink in his hand every moment he was on screen. Well, he, did well, he almost did. <laughs> yeah, because after this, it was he his drinking got to the point where he ended up on television through most of the rest of the 50s and 60s because his alcohol use got abusive and then he ended up in the uh, classic old guy who drank too much scenario guesting on love boat i knew i liked him <laughs> well to be fair how much do you have to have drank in order to be obsessive or abusive in the 50s <laughs> well, i don't know we talked about the wizard of oz and the guy who played the wizard and i'm drawing a blank as to his name carried a, a briefcase and it was a portable bar yeah that's probably obsessive but i had my most charismatic is going ray Milland. again i just really enjoy his performance and it's so sedated but it feels almost omniscient he just has this all-knowing purposefulness that no matter what's going to happen, nothing's going to really phase him. He's always a cool, calm, collected customer that even though he's planning a murder, even though it's being carried out, he'll just think through the next thing. And it's why the ending works as well as it does, because you're not sure, even as many times as you watch it, whether he's actually going to get caught. Because he's able to slither his way out of most of these situations up until the inevitable point that it does end. Well, we're talking, well, we're going to be talking about the best scenes. And I think his 
character as Tony with Swan in that whole first scene, how he's manipulating the whole situation is a good job of, of acting and playing on the fears of Swan. And uh, he just does it with such finesse. I'm not sure anybody else could do it quite like that. Well, in order to really deliver the lines, you have to be convincing. And I think as the audience, especially myself, I was trying to think through all of these things. If I were Swan, is this something that would make me want to commit murder? Especially when I just got out of prison. And you start to think through all of those things and uh, that he's basically already A, committed murder against the one widow, and B, that he's already in trouble with trying to scrape his way out by basically being somewhat of a black widow type of guy. I think for sure, but you can't just present blackmail and say, I have this force over you. It's the way he does it in such a convincing manner by being charismatic and just uses his charm to eventually get him under his thumb. Right. And so one of the the last lines that I love about that whole thing is he's talking to him and then the, and then Rain Millard asks him, well, or Swan says, tell me about the carrot. You know, he's got him over a barrel, hook, line, and sinker. And so the minute he says, tell me about the carrot, he knows that Milan's character or Millard's character has completely convinced him that he needs to do this because there is no other option. Well, he dangles it in just such a way that it allows him the option of an out. Well, the writer did a great job of setting that all up. Yeah, it, it is probably the best dialogue scene of the movie. Yeah. Although I would say it's more of an act just due to the length of that entire sequence. So, Dad, who did you have as most charismatic? For anybody who listens to this show on a regular basis, you'll know who mine is. Grace Kelly. She just has an, an a grace and an elegance and a classicness. I mean, she was a movie star. In fact, I would say that she possibly was the last of the classic Hollywood film stars that were bigger than the movies and the parts. There was just something about her that was mesmerizing. Well, I think she she always does a good job on whatever she plays, for sure. But I think I didn't enjoy her character quite as much because she seems to be so naive. And I don't know how any person could be so blind. Because she's a rich uh, uh, socialite who never had to really do anything other than be pretty and have money. Yeah, I, I don't really like the way her character's written in this. It's very different from her rear window character where she's much more of the lead and dragging along Jimmy Stewart's character. She's much more powerful and has agency and really is involved in all of the defining moments of that particular movie, including the conclusion where she basically solves the mystery. Or well, here she has no depth. We don't really right. know anything about her other than the fact that she she answered the telephone and was able to, you know, with a scissor, kill this guy, and then nobody believes her. Well, she gets a small bit of exposition in the first scene, and then she's basically out of it until the murder scene. Yeah, I, I didn't say that her part was great. I'm saying she was charismatic because of just who she was. I think if you would have put some other actress in there, they would have just disappeared completely from from the film. Dad just likes pretty thing. Anyway, Mom, where did you go? Um, I had Robert Cummings. I just think his whole character exudes charisma and uh, charm and, you know, the, the every man, you know, somebody who wants to be every man, you know, or every man wants to be just that calm, cool, collected, good looking guy that every woman wants. So. He reminds me of a non-neurotic Tony Randall. Yes. Although I think he has a little bit more sex appeal than Tony Randall. So maybe a Tony Curtis instead? Yes, okay. Okay. So best scenes, uh the one now again, I think this particular movie is more acts than it is scenes because of the way it's structured based on the play. So I'll just nominate, I only had four nominees because this really is very, very long scenes. 
I had Tony reveals his plan, the attempted murder, Hubbard interviews Margot, and Hubbard traps Tony. Did anybody else have anything to nominate? No, they sort of mimic mine. Deb? No, the only other thing I would say is there was an actual opening scene, which is where the characters were kind of revealed, and it shows the embrace between Mark and uh, Margot. But even that wasn't that huge. I thought that was mostly exposition, and so I didn't include it because it's just more of an informational scene than there is a whole lot else to that. I think really when this movie starts to jump off, it's when Tony gets Swan to come over to the apartment, and then that whole sequence begins. So out of all of these, what would you say is the best scene or act in this case? I think it's the whole dialogue between Tony and Swan when he's like saying, you have no choice. I have every every piece of information on you and I could get you, you know, back in all kinds of trouble or so you need to do what I have planned. I think I would tend to agree. I think I could make a case for the end with the trap because of the pacing of that and you're just waiting to see how it'll play out. You assume what the ending's going to be, but you don't necessarily know until it happens. And that's very much the same way that the inspector traps him. He assumes what's going to happen and hopes that it's going to be there, but you don't know. So I could make a good case that for the way that that plays out, it plays into the suspense role that Hitchcock is famous for and actually plays really well. But I think realistically... The best scene in this is the Swan-Tony confrontation at the beginning, just because of how much dialogue is included in there, but how many different ebbs and flows there are to that scene. Well, I actually went with the inspector scene or the closing, the reveal, because it, it just the sheer fact of the, fact, of the way that the play and Hitchcock kind of played with the emotions. For example, when John Williams is standing at the window, he goes, oh, he's walking away. I guess we're done for now. And then, oh, he's thought about it again. And then he comes back. It's, you're, they're letting you down and getting your hopes. Oh, it's not going to work out. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And then playing back. So to me, that's why I thought it was the, the best scene and my favorite scene uh, for that reason. I just thought it was well done. And it wasn't so obvious that you uh, immediately knew what was, you knew what the outcome was going to be. But the manner by which it was unraveled, you had no clue as was unfolding in foreground of you. I think that's exactly why we went with John Williams as our best performer is particularly that scene because the pacing and again, the all-knowing nature that he has to present and the way that you even describe the him looking out the window, he almost plays it like a sportscaster. <laughs> yes. Just kind of narrating the action of everything that's going on, but it's still compelling. So then, Mom, what was your favorite? Um, mine is the, the the whole dialogue between Tony and Swan. I just, you really have to follow it because Tony is talking so fast and in so many circles that if you're not paying attention, you may miss a detail. Yeah, and that was mine too. Uh, we've talked that up quite a bit already. So it, most indelible for me was the ending though, because I think by the time you get to that, you may m- remember other parts of the movie But all of it would be undone if the ending doesn't leave that lasting note with you. The whole culmination of all of the thought processes and and just to see that she got off when she really didn't do anything but defend herself. Exactly. And nobody really came to her aid. Well, Mark tried, but it wasn't the uh, great attempt that he thought it would be. So my, my question, well, I guess we can get that to my questions later. So never mind. Dad, what is your most indelible then? Uh, the strangulation scene and uh, Anthony Dawson uh, and he's the, the night or the, the scissors in his back and then the fall. I know that the way that was filmed was to highlight the 3D aspect of it. But to me, that every time I think of Dialem, I always remember that scene, her struggling on the desk, the cutaway to Ray Milan in the phone booth, who's like, feels the pain. It's like, I want her dead, but I still don't necessarily want her dead. But, you know, and that whole scene to me is always uh, memorable for that. Well, I just think it's interesting. He got the knife in his back. Do you know what I'm saying? Because Ray Millarn had him 
had him with the knife in his back to start with. And that's the way he died, figuratively and literally. The only question I would have for that scene is, I don't know if she had the angle to stab into the middle of his back, like coming around because her arms, I don't know, would have been long enough to be able to perform that and get the the motion, especially where it supposedly stabs in. But that's a nitpick on my part. This seems like a good opportunity to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. We are going to skip over In Memoriam this week as we're pre-taping this episode. All right, so let's move to Best Funniest Lines. I had a really difficult time trying to nominate stuff for as good a dialogue movie as this is. There weren't a lot of things that you could just pull out that didn't involve, like, huge sequences of dialogue. So I only have a couple, but, Mom, let's give you first crack. What did you have down? Well, I as I spoke of before, I have about the, the scene where Swan says smart aren't you and tony wendis says no not really i've just had time to think things out put myself in your position that's why i know you're going to agree what makes you think i'll agree and wendis says for the same reason a donkey with a stick behind him and a carrot in front of him always goes forwards and not backwards and swan says tell me about the carrot dead john williams they talk about flat-footed police May the saints protect us from the gifted amateur. First one I had down, people don't commit murder on credit. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Yes, exactly. Mom, you're up. Well, I'm I'm looking, I think that it's when Tony goes and asks Mark when he first first meets him, how do you go about writing a detective story? And he talks about, well, you forget detection. Oh, well, I had the expanded version of that. How do you go about writing a detective story? Well, you forget about detection and concentrate on crime. Crime's the thing. And then you imagine that you're going to steal something or murder somebody. Oh, is that how you do it? It's interesting. Yes, I usually put myself in the criminal's shoes, and then I keep asking myself, uh, what do I do next? Do you really believe in the perfect murder? Mm, yes, absolutely. On paper, that is. And I think I could, uh plan one better than most people, but I doubt if I could carry it out. Oh, and why not? Well, because in stories, things usually turn out the way the author wants them to, and in real life, they don't, always. Hmm, I'm afraid my murders would be something like my bridge. I'd make some stupid mistake and never realize it until I found everybody was looking at me. So foreshadowing. And of course, Mark is the one who's got it all figured out long before anyone else. Well, except he doesn't notice that he has, but... (laughs) Dan, I think you're up. Inspector Hubbard to uh, Detective Pearson, who's about to leave with Wendis's, or Mrs. Wendis's purse around his wrist. Oh, wait a minute, you clot. You can't walk down the street like that. You'll be arrested. I think that's the only funny line in the whole movie, because it really isn't a a movie with a a comedy. It's not meant to be funny. All right, so... Then, uh, anybody have any left? I, I'm out. I do. Margo, how long have you known this? Hubbard, didn't you expect it yourself? Margo, no, never. And yet? What's the matter with me, Mark? I don't seem to be able to feel anything. Mom, do you have any left? No, that was the only other one that I had. Um, and I like that line because I think it, it puts into perspective her whole feeling. She cannot believe that her husband would try to murder her. I would say that if we were to pick out one thing, and again, the word you used, foreshadowing, is uh, poignant. Uh, I would say that that's probably the best line. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric. And uh, Mom, if you're not familiar, we have kind of lately divided the category into two sets of five to make the ten. One side for the industry, one side for the audience, so we get a little bit more of an appreciation for all of the things that encompass legacy. So, Dad, let's let you lead off and give her kind of an example to follow. Okay, from a a legacy standpoint, for the industry, I went with a 4.5. And the reason I gave that is, is first of all, it was, again, Grace Kelly. Uh, Second is, is there have been at least two remakes and several other films based on it. 
also, as I indicated before, this is credited with a lot of uh, the way modern television crime dramas are done, which is revealing the crime and then watching the detective unravel it. Uh, so I think that that's why I gave it a fairly high mark. From a legacy standpoint, if you're a Hitchcock fan, you love the film, you talk about the film, it's not a film that everybody readily knows. So I went with a 3.5 simply because it is highly regarded as a Hitchcock film, and there are certain Hitchcockian aspects to it, uh, which is um, a lot of the camera angles, the camera shots, the editing and such uh, make it a very uh, a film that's probably within one of the top ones of Hitchcock uh, in general. So total uh, eight. So I knew I was going to be drastically different than both of you, but uh, I'm going to probably be on the lower end of all of these. First off, when considering the industry side of it, I don't think this really made a lasting impact on Hitchcock's career. I think it's only notable because it's a Hitchcock movie. Otherwise, it would be generally forgotten. It isn't even considered one of his top five, maybe even top ten movies because it didn't really need a ton of directorship. I think the only scene in which he gives any of the visuals is the strangulation scene. And the mostly positive reviews were due to the actors and the writing having nothing to do almost at all with the direction. I think this is an odd choice for our Hitchcock month, even though it falls in our, I guess, you both love this film. But I, I think this is a loved movie, but it's certainly not a talked about movie as in the same breath with some of his other masterpieces, even right around that, given that uh, Rear Window was the same year. So I gave it only a one and a half for the industry. I gave it a three for the audience because this is a movie that some people just really love. But I think it's generally forgotten in comparison to some of the other ones of Hitchcock's career when we talk about Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds. This is just not uttered in the same reference. So I ended up at a four and a half. Mom? Well, I had a three as far as the legacy for the industry. I too, I think Dana articulated what there was, you know, with regard to the making of the film and the genre that, that came afterwards about the backwards crime novel. But I had it as a 3.0 simply because it didn't make a whole lot of impact um, as far as the audience, I have a 4.5 because I, like I said, can, I think that the, the subject matter is still relevant. I think that people enjoy the movie and because it is such an odd Hitchcock film, I have a 4.5. All right. So that makes a 6.67 between us as the average. Uh, let's go to impact significance. Mom, if you think you've got the division of industry and audience down. That's kind of how the way we've done uh, impact significance as well. We'll let you start off. I think I had the same score as I had for the legacy. The impact was not great on either his career or any of the other actors as far as that goes. I don't think it made any huge strides in filmmaking per se. So I had a, a three. And as far as the significance a four. It just, it's not a powerful film. It's just an enjoyable film to watch. Uh, Dan, what did you have down? I had three and three for six. Again, this uh, was not a huge impact in uh, movie making at the time. Uh, in it, the significance of it, it was a film that did well in the box office, but even that, it had to lose the 3D aspect in order to really start uh, receiving audiences. So I don't think it really had the push and drive at the time that it came out that it has now. I think the long view of this film is more than the short view. So that's why I went with a six. I think both of you kind of hit it on the head, but I are being a little bit more forgiving than I was. This had a modest box office by our standards. It would be the equivalent of, I think, roughly, because it's about 10 times somewhere in the realm of about 27 to $30 million at the box office, which would be fine for a small indie film or something else in, in current day's numbers. I just don't think this was kind of a hit in the way that some other movies were or was celebrated in the way movies that uh, Grace Kelly appeared in with Hitchcock over the next year and a half 
rear window and to catch a thief were. So lukewarm reviews, no awards attention, dismissed by the director himself. I think that is an important factor that he felt he could just phone this one in because it didn't really need any of his flares. I just don't think this left an imprint at all in the industry or the audience and was clearly overshadowed. I, I went for a two and a two, so for a four total, that uh, ends up at a 5.67 average between the three of us. Novelty. This one, I, I struggled with it. The most creative thing about this is the script and the plot devising. It wasn't a daring movie by any stretch, but it wasn't exactly a new concept either. I, I oh, thought it was. I don't know about that though, Thomas. I don't know at that point in time how many, how many movies actually talked about an extramarital affair. But this is still you're you're adapting a stage play. The play is a little bit more novel. But okay, but in essentially, movies, it was have... like a no-no. You didn't talk about that kind of stuff, and so I think that this. This topic, this theme, was novel. I don't even think it's novel to Hitchcock movies. Like, we're talking about murder and uh, affairs, and I do think that that was not... It may not have been in the most popular movies, but it wasn't an untalked-about thing. So I, I'm not sure I buy that one. It, it's a well-executed movie with direct or minimal directorship, great actors doing what they do best, and a good script. But I'm just not going to say that this is more daring or novel film than something like Rebecca or Suspicion, because it's just not. The points it has for quality are that it's a relatively fun, as you kind of mentioned, movie, especially considering the subject matter. And it's somewhat of a caper film uh, that's of kind of a modestly simple and safe direction. I, I don't think this movie, other than maybe that somebody was having an affair and it involves murder took a lot of chances with the story. It's still somewhat cute, which is exactly why it's rewatchable. Uh, I don't but, know about that, Tom. You have a woman who went to prison for murdering her husband when she didn't do it. And and how many films at that point do you have a woman being incarcerated? There's just some real novel aspects to this whole movie. This is at the same time as A Place in the Sun, which is a much more daring film. I'll give it a soft five because I think you'd both hammer me if I went below that. <laughs> I have a seven, but I've already made all my points. And I will now um, give mine. I've waited my turn. So seven, uh, or no, I actually had a six on this because, yes, I didn't think it was that novel. I, You know, it was well done. It's enjoyable. It was a stage play. I already indicated. I think I gave it quite a bit of weight in the legacy category because of how it was framed. But it's an average, you know, basically of the time frame, who done it and it wasn't very bold or or whatever. Like I, I do will give points because to mom's kind of or point, women were not executed very often. Especially, you know, I think maybe a little more in England than they were or in Britain than they were in the United States. It took a lot uh, for a female to be executed in the United States during that time frame. Um, so to that extent, there's a little bit of novelty there. So that's why it went a little bit higher, but six. Let's move to classicness. And Dad, we always let you lead off as you usually shape the opinion of this category. We'll let you go first. Well, I went back and forth because, like I said, I start with classics of a five. And, I mean, it's it's Britain in the 1950s. So, you know, you don't have to worry about diversity of cast because there wasn't much diversity of anything in Britain in the 1950s. Um, maybe you had a few people from the uh, Dominions uh, living there, but that wasn't even that high. And other than the fact that... Uh, the woman is accused and is rather passive about it. And it takes uh, a man sets her up and a man rescues her. So I had to give it a little bit of points down for that. So I went with an eight because I didn't see much else that was bad about it. I asked it at the top, but who is the hero in this movie? Is it the detective? Is it Ray Land who's trying to kill his wife for having an affair with Mark? All of these people are probably out of the classic 50s definition of heroes. That being said, from the way this looks to the simple story, the execution of that story, 
to having a couple of old classic movie stars in a Hitchcock film, all of that aged well as far as I'm concerned. I think if anything, you can nitpick this a little bit just to get it down to a nine because I think there are more classic Hitchcock films just on a personal basis, but I'll go with a nine because I think that that's still pretty high in this category and realistically compared to some of the other films around it, I think there are much bigger problems with uh, ones that go even at an eight for our purposes. I agree. I, well, I have an eight. Um, so Tom, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> as <laughs> you graded it higher as it was it's one of my favorite movies but I just think it is I think you have a lot of classic actors I think you have um you know a good director a good filmmaker you have a fantastic story and I just think it transcends things I think it's just a classic movie so I have scored it an eight so that's an 8.33 between all of us or averaged out so this is mom's favorite movie. I have an inkling of what her rewatchability score is going to be. I already know what dad's rewatchability score is going to be, but let's give you the opportunity to have your say. Mom, let's start with you and go right into dad. Oh, I have a nine. I watched this film at least once a year. I've enjoyed this film for probably 25 years or more ever since dad sort of introduced me into Alfred Hitchcock. I love the way the inspector thinks, and I love the way that Raymond and Tony Wendis's character thinks. And so for me, I always pick up something new every time I watch it. And this time, of course, I was watching it and taking notes. And so I was even more intent on some of the dialogue and how everything is wrapped into one another. And I'm always learning something every single time I watch it. So like I said, I, I gave it a nine. It's it's one of my favorite movies to watch, and there's just something about it that just changes every time I see it. So, Dad, I think this might be a hallmark moment for the show. What was your rewatchability score? 9.5. I couldn't go complete 10 because I, you certain, I have to have a certain aspect of wanting to be in the right mood. You can't be really bad, but... I could put this film on any time that I'm on an average night and just sit and watch it or not watch it and just have it on in the background and look up and realize and whatever. So to me, if this is as close to uh, macaroni and cheese as it gets. You said for sure it was going to be a 10. <laughs> there always has to be a certain aspect about something, doesn't there? I need to get that printed on a t-shirt for you for the show. <laughs> There's always a certain aspect about something. It's your auditory crutch. I, I know. I have a difficult time ever uh, accepting perfection. <sighs> One of these times, we're going to get a fucking dead. Hey, it's like pulling teeth with you. So audience score, this was a 90% on Google, 92% for Rotten Tomato users, 9.1 overall for our purposes. So, added up, that was a 6.67 for Legacy, a 5.67 for Impact Significance, a 6 for Novelty, 8.33 for Classicness, 8.67 for Rewatchability, uh, with my 7.5, because I forgot to mention that now. It's not Rear Window, it's not North by Northwest, Vertigo, Rope, that are my favorite Hitchcock movies. It's kind of in that next tier or so, but this is a highly rewatchable movie. There isn't anything that's off-putting. It's executed well. I enjoy the the actors that are in this, and I could rewatch this very easily for the acting and dialogue. But my studious mind would tell me to rewatch some of the other ones that have a little bit more of the Hitch mastery in them, because I don't know if I can take a whole lot out of this one that I couldn't from seeing the play. I think most of the things that are happening in this, uh, while on screen, aren't exactly part of the movie making process because. This is somewhat vanilla in the movie pre presentation of it. Anyway, with that being said and all that added up, we have a 44.44. So a lot of fours. And currently that would place it in between the Dirty Dozen and Pretty Woman on the list. Just slightly ahead of Pretty Woman. I think we're, we're getting quite a theme with Mom here. <laughs> All right, so let's go to remaining questions. 
Uh, I'll take the first one up because it was the thing that bothered me the most just watching this again because it's something I completely forgot. How the fuck does Hubbard just take someone on death row a day before they are to be executed and get them sent home? He's just the cop. Oh, he had to deal with the home secretary. He said he had to call the home secretary. The home secretary has that authority. Okay, maybe I just missed that one, but it, it seemed to bother me that you, you could just so easily arrange that. The other thing, that, though, that I will point out, too, is, is this is something that Americans don't gasp or grasp. But there is no search and seizure law in Britain. So a police officer could just go into your house and look at your bank statement, mm. which is what he did. He, it just got my dander up, and he went in and looked at his bank statement. Good old America. That's why we have a search and seizure rule, because we didn't like it when the British did it. Well, a lot of our stuff is because we didn't like the way the British did it, like drawn and quartering. One of the things that really bothers me about this film is why did the inspector wait until after the court hearing and after she was on death row and about to be executed to figure this all out or to clear her? Why didn't he do it prior to that so that he could have gotten her off the hook, except for the suspense of the movie? If he had this all sorted out, why didn't he do it before all of that? I don't think he had it sorted out. I think the thing that triggered his suspicions was Tony spending a lot of money over a certain period of time. So it would take time in order for him to become suspicious, then to start looking into things and then to start piecing it all together. Oh, I suppose with the blue briefcase. Yeah, I don't know how long he would have necessarily needed to be spending money in order for the trial to have happened and her to already be near execution. Just because, at least from what I'm used to, that takes a really long process in the U.S., but this is the 50s in England, so I have no idea how long their court trials and cases and death row execution takes. And didn't she have some sort of an attorney that would help try to clear her and bring up all this stuff to start with? I'm thinking she didn't have any representation. Well, she did. She would have had a barrister. Well, they didn't do a very good job. Well, then you'd probably like Witness for the Prosecution as a better movie. <laughs> the, one, the, the part that floored me is he got discovered because he started spending the money he was going to use to pay Swan. Why would you do that? You're, she's under sentence of death. She's going to be dead in a, a few weeks. Just hold on to the money. At that point, you get all of her inheritance and all of her money. You could have spent it at that point in time and no one would have caught on. But, Dad, how many times, as a defense attorney, have you not said criminals are not smart? They always make some mistake. It's hubris. And he actually, he foreshadowed making that mistake in, in the beginning of the movie. He he said when he was talking to Mark about, you know, the perfect murder, that he would make that as a murder, he would make a mistake. And then what did he do? He made a mistake. Hubris. Pure hubris. Anybody got any remaining questions left? Did Mark and Margot hook up afterwards? I think that's obvious because they were already hugging and kissing at the end of the scene. I I think it's quite obvious. She's going to clearly divorce him. I mean, he had tried to have her killed. He's going to basically rot away in prison. Although that's another open question. He's going to be executed. No, I don't think so. I think they foreshadow this that he would have only gotten a few years. So when Mark and he are talking and he was going to go confess, he's only going to probably get like three to five years in prison for an attempted murder. Yes. Soliciting for murder. It's not even an attempt. It's a solicitation. Solicitation for of murder. You don't see that every day, and usually you have to pay double for that kind of action. Okay, Pepper. Uh, it was cotton. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> yes, it was cotton. Anyway. Another great film. Anybody have any remaining thoughts for the week? I nope. do not. Except that it's been a pleasure to be back on the show. Well, thank you. I don't know if I've ever seen A Shadow of a Doubt, like in its really? entirety. No. I thought we watched it together. Mm, I think you watched it and I might have seen some scenes, but I, I don't remember like really watching it. But I do love Joseph Cotton and Teresa Wright, so it's going to be an interesting film to uh, consume for next week. 
Yes, it is a very excellent film. So it's one of those. And the reason I thought we should include it is because part of our job or part of the reason we do this is to encourage people to look at films that they may not be familiar with or thought about. So when that time comes of what should we watch tonight? Well, I would not particularly suggest our Halloween film that's coming up to uh, everybody on the average night, but some people might (laughs) enjoy watching that at any time. Mom, you going to watch Psycho with Dad? Have you ever watched the entire film? You told me you haven't let her. You wouldn't let her watch Silence of the Lambs until like last year. Well, then he didn't have a choice because I was in quarantine and I just watched it by myself. But uh, I think, Dana, we did start it at one point and we never got back to it. And it was before the whole shower scene. So, but I've never finished it. Yeah, I'm already going to tell you my novelty score on Psycho is going to probably be very high. Uh, Yes, because it's the first time I've ever seen a film just absolutely change in the middle. Well, it wasn't even in the middle. You kill off the title character, like, what is it, a half an hour in? <laughs> anyway, we'll get into it. But, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, episode 86 by my count. So getting closer and closer to the end of the year. I don't think we're going to get 100 in before uh, we end for the calendar year of 2021. I think it's going to be early next year. But we do have some plans of what that's going to be coming up. And we did already, a couple of episodes ago, tell you what our Christmas movies were going to be. We have three of them back to back to back, but at least the two that uh, we're certainly going to have an argument over. Lots of things to look forward to on the show coming up. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we'll be covering a film that I'm not sure people other than Hitchcock or film fans are familiar with, but that I would really encourage all of you to watch before next week's episode, A Shadow of a Doubt. Starring Teresa Wright, Joseph Cotton, Henry Travers, and McDonald Carey. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or on Twitter at gmotepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 